Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Jenna Cato Bass, a South African filmmaker I first encountered when her ingenious body-switching drama High Fantasy played TIFF in 2017. She's since brought two more films to the festival, the western-adjacent Flatland in 2019, and last year's Good Madam, a very clever movie starring Chamisa Kosa as Tsidi, a young woman who comes to live with her estranged mother, who's working as a caregiver in an affluent Cape Town suburb, and finds herself in the middle of a very strange, possibly malevolent situation. Good Madam premieres this Thursday, July 14th on Shudder, and it's really good. You should check it out. Jenna picked Homicide Life on the Street, which, yes, it's a television series. But it ended with a movie, and I love it, so what the hell? Adapted from David Simon's riveting book, Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets, by screenwriter Paul Adonacio and director Barry Levinson, the Emmy-winning ensemble drama debuted in early 1993 on NBC and ran for the rest of the decade. Following the detectives of a Baltimore homicide squad, played by a stacked cast that started with Andre Brower, Yafit Koto, Clark Johnson, Kyle Secor, Melissa Leo, Isabella Hoffman, Ned Beatty, Daniel Baldwin, and John Polito, as they coped with crushing cases, useless politicians, and a city that seemed bent on tearing itself apart every other week. And if that sounds more like a documentary now, that was kind of the point. This is someone else's movie, which this week is a TV show. It's such a like a, a thing we take for granted now. Like, you know, like, of course, shows are cinematic, but like it wasn't such an obvious thing. And my two favorite, like the show, the two shows that like, I think are probably my favorite things that have ever been made by humanity are Twin Peaks and Homicide Life on the Street. And I thought Twin Peaks was maybe a, a, an obvious choice. And I thought someone surely must have done or done a little fire walk with me or something. So I didn't choose that. But um, yeah, I just that you know those two shows in so many ways really did set a bar that we t- yeah we take for granted now, but it was really exceptional at the time. I guess the the obvious question then is when did you see them? Did, were you uh, you're considerably younger than I am, so I was there <laughs> at the time. Did you discover them when they first aired? How old were um, you? I actually so I was kind of there at the time. So basically. Um, so I was very like late to watching TV and movies. Like, I mean, I, obviously like I watched a lot of like, like I had, I loved like animation and animated shows and animated movies when I was a kid, but like, I was very, very sensitive. Like the first time I saw someone die on screen was an air force one. And like, I just took ages to get over with. And I'm like, I remember my parents were watching the great escape. It was their great escape. And I, I like, I was like devastated. Like I kind of came in when Donald Pleasance get, dies and I was just like, I, I, I cried for like a whole week basically. <laughs> and um, I was just like, how could the Nazis shoot him? He's blind. You couldn't see them. It's not fair, you know? So um, yeah, I just was really sensitive. So I didn't watch like adult stuff, like despite being like, even like my teens, like it, it took quite a while. Like I was just not, I couldn't handle it. And at the same time, my 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 parents lo- like really love crime shows, and so they were often watching that after I went to bed for like many years. And like when I was in my like preteens, early teens, I started to get like curious about what they were watching, and wanting to stay up a bit late and watch. And it was kind of like the first adult thing I ever got into, even though I was still like probably, you know, I couldn't watch like movies that were like sixteen or you know, like they, my parents probably wouldn't have let me. But there was something about Homicide which. I just loved so much. Like the, it was really the characters. Like I came to care about those characters 
so so much like I yeah and I think it was really that and then you know and then as I grew older it became more slightly more age appropriate and I just like I watched all of it so I probably didn't I don't know when I started like what season but um I feel like I was there for all of it even though I probably wasn't <laughs> but it was religious after that like once I got into it it was like and then when it ended I was just like distraught <laughs> My experience was different. Uh, I started in season two with the Robin Williams guest shot, um, which was a big deal. It was marketed. Um, People were talking about it in a pre-internet reality that this this made the news that there was going to be an episode of this cop show that Robin Williams was going to star in because the director was a friend of his. Um, So he and Barry Levinson had worked together before and, and there he is. And it was like, it's solid. He was great, but it is, it's a one-off. That episode is closed. It's a special guest appearance, a very special episode, however you want to frame it. And I came back anyway, um, having had no investment in anything other than, oh, this is a really well shot, interesting television show. I would have been in my mid twenties, I guess. And every week since, like, I just, I kept coming back. And then I I caught up to season one as soon as it was on syndicated showing somewhere, I think maybe on arts and entertainment. But I love, it's one of those things where I don't think I'd seen Kyle Secor in anything, maybe an indie film. Somewhere. I love him so much. Like I just talk, just thinking about Kyle Secor like makes me like teary. Like <laughs> I just love him so much. Like, and for, like, I think he was one of like the earliest crushes I ever had. Like, like when I was like 12 or something and I was just like, I'm going to marry him. And then there was the whole thing where I came in Pembleton and it's just like, Oh my gosh. It's like, it's one of the, I just, I'm, I get so emotional about it. Like these characters meant so much and they still do. Like, and, and so part of the reason I want to talk about it now is that a friend of mine got me the box set um, as a gift a little while ago. So my family and I are rewatching it from the beginning every Friday night. Cause we're Jewish. So on the, like we have Shabbat dinner together every, every Friday. And then we watch Homicide Life on the street. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not against, it's very against the Sabbath. It's not very kosher to be watching TV. But um, we feel it's like, our, I think our religion has become very blurred with homicide life on the street now. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, it feels like a different kind of worship, but but not unreasonable. Not um, at all. I mean, Yafet Koto does sort of preside over the whole thing. Giordello G as an angry God, you know, it's it's... It's New Testamenty in that it's about speaking for the victim. Sorry, I'm going to read this. I'm going to read way too much into this now, but it's a great idea. And I can't put it down. How many cops are there? Are there twelve? Are there disciples? Could we make the case for this as a sort of new Christian interpretation? <laughs> I don't know if there's twelve at the same time. Uh, I, I'm not sure. Hmm. Yeah, maybe yeah. the regulars, the ones that are like the okay. But anyway, like I guess we could go down a rabbit hole now. But. Um, yeah, he he is incredible, Yafikoto, and I mean, a, such an amazing actor. Like you know, out, outside of Homicide as well. Like I I love him also, and yeah, just I mean, I think that was the thing. I'd never seen characters like that. I don't think I'd ever seen like diversity on screen before at that point. And obviously, mm-hmm. I didn't really like know much of what I was, you know, why that was important at the time. But like living in South Africa, it was like, oh, obviously, but I'd never seen people of different races and cultures like working together and then also speaking about race and like race race comes up and then they go back to work and then I'd never seen people behaving like that like in a way that was really so like identifiable so yeah (laughs) Yeah. I can get cash about the show like so so much um I'm so grateful for having the opportunity to do it because it never gets like everyone's always like wanting to speak about the wire which is also amazing but um 
Yeah, I'm so glad you're a Homicide fan. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, the the Wire, I mean, The Wire is, the Homicide was the gateway drug to, to The Wire for me because it, it introduced me to David Simon's book, which yeah. I hadn't read before seeing the series. Um, and the, 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 one, the one thing I've carried with me from that book is the story about using a fax machine as a lie detector, which shows up in both an episode of Homicide and an episode of The Wire because it's too good a detail that Simon <laughs> could leave it behind. And he said, you know, like, it's the thing that everyone thinks he made up, but it was happening daily in the real Baltimore precinct because that's just how they dealt with idiots. Uh -huh. um, and it's, it's, it's the first, I mean, we're dealing with the, the era of Hill Street Blues and LA Law and the, like, all of NBC's crime procedurals were about people trying to make the world better and succeeding in small bits and pieces here and there. And mm -hmm. here's Homicide, which says more often than not, you can solve the crime, but you don't get justice or you mm -hmm. don't solve anything else and the world doesn't change. And that's, I mean, that's sort of the accepted wisdom now of, of um, municipal politics, right? Like nothing changes. Everybody's stuck in the same place over and over again. The system is the problem. Homicide articulates it I think for the first time that I'd experienced, it articulates that sort of civic despair in people's faces. There are no speeches. Pembleton speechifies all the time and never changes anything because the the genius of Pembleton as a, as a character and of Andre Brower as a performer is that he is filled with righteous, completely justifiable anger and it doesn't matter. It, it His friends are tired of him. They're still his friends, but... I, I always thought that was a remarkable arc where this incredibly eloquent, principled, furious man who happens to be black in a world that isn't built for him is right about almost everything. And he can't figure out a way to live with it. He just, he's yeah. constantly simmering with this, this rage that never goes away. And it's contextually uh, completely appropriate to his character, but it also speaks for an entire experience that television was not putting on the air. Just simply, you know, this was the time of the Cosby show or a different world where harmony and peace were the most important things. The messaging was all about, uh, like Cosby's whole argument for his show was that black people don't have to be seen as black people. They can just be a family that happens to be black and they're successful and it's the same as any other white sitcom, which I get it. I understand the aspirational aspect of that and the representation hadn't happened, but it gave way to things like, or it made the way for things like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air where there's just no racial tension and it's a happy comedy where everyone gets along and it borders on an impossible version of America because that wasn't happening. And here's Homicide to be angry about it all the time in a way that makes absolutely perfect sense. I mean, that must've landed in post-apartheid South Africa. Yeah, and and I mean that that's what I find so interesting about like really really loving and connecting with the show at like a very young age where like politics was not even something that like I registered at all like it was not I, you know my family's not political like it wasn't like I connected what I was seeing on screen like mentally with what I was experiencing in real life but with hindsight you know, and as an adult and then because also because for a very long time before I kind of went back to the show, I, you know, I knew that this show was meant so much to me, but I kind of really beat myself up about like the way I idolized the police, like, you know, as a result mm -hmm. of this movie to the point where I actually like 
considered becoming a police person like I actually tried to be a, like a, a reservist like a, at one point that I went to the like police station I said I'd like to be a reservist and they like laughed at me and they wouldn't let me join um but you know like so I really felt like embarrassed about that like and having you know and then when I went back to the show and I was like wow like yeah I see of course it's a cop show like of course you know you love these characters who are cops but like it's very, very seldom that you they ever like let them off the hook about the fact that they are cops and that what they're doing is fraught like constantly and that they are dealing with that and society is dealing with that. And and yeah, and then the race element and like, yeah, with hindsight, it's like, of course I love this show. Like this was the closest thing I got to anything that felt real. Like on, on and never mind how it was shot, you know, which is like got this, you know, extreme hyper real like cinematic quality to it. And like all the creative choices that Barry Levinson made in the pilot that, you know, more or less stay with it the rest of the, you know, the rest of like all the seasons. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Um yeah, no, it's so it's so interesting. I mean, and that's also partly why I was keen to talk about it, because I felt like yeah, there's just so much I could say. And like, I mean, and, and that's, that was without even like knowing that you would have things to say, about <laughs> which I'm so glad, like, because I, I don't think I've ever really, other than my family, I don't ever get to speak to anyone who <laughs> likes homicide. Like, no, I don't know anyone else. So this is, this is, this is special for me. Oh, oh thank you. I was going to say like, was there, did it have a footprint culturally in South Africa? But I don't think it had much of one in America either. I mean, it's, it's like the Velvet Underground. Everybody who saw them started in their own thing but mm. nobody saw them. Hardly anyone saw them. I don't know. I'm sure people watched it here because I mean, it was, it was on TV and I don't know, but like, I mean, none of my, I don't know. I don't feel like I've ever really had a conversation with anyone else. The only person is my editor um, who I work with all the time, Jacques de Villiers, because I've like forced him to watch it so many times as like editing references for especially my earlier films, which involve a lot of improv and like then the editing style was a big Im- 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 um, inspiration. So He's someone I can talk to about it, but like no one else that I I know of. Um, I'm sure there's some closet homicide fans out there. I just haven't found them. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, hopefully we will catch a few and pull them in. Um, there is, I mean, there's enough of a following for the whole series to be released on DVD. Uh, yeah, which of we course. Both have so and, and for the levels of interest and and the other thing too that I keep coming back to, I'm just I'm looking off to the side at the cast list and realizing that everybody who virtually everybody who appeared on the show went on to a tremendous career. Um, you know, I, I always forget Giancarlo Esposito came in as uh, yeah. a son of G yeah. in the final seasons. And I think, I mean, I'd seen him in Do the Right Thing, but mm-hmm. Homicide was the first place that felt like a home for him where he wasn't just a guest star mm-hmm. and where we got to see his full range of of, of potential. Um, and it yeah, was- incredible. Yeah. Again, NYPD Blue was the one winning all the Emmys, but it, mm-hmm. was, it was kind of an overwrought faux intensity that was yeah. very slick and polished and unbelievable yeah it's interesting because I because before like before my parents started with homicide they were watching NYPD Blue and I think that's sort of a, the point I sort of joined in it and I was sort of like a bit into it but like I don't remember it was obviously there was a I can't remember but there was clearly a big difference between the two shows where like one just got and again, I, I just put it down to the characters, really, because I think that's what I understood at the time was just these emotions and these people who were really suffering because they were trying to do good, you know. And I think that's something I really resonated with as a child. <laughs> I don't know why. It's like a question for my therapist, maybe. Um, but yeah, I just, I just, yeah, I think I just gravitated to these people who were so flawed and yet were still like really committed to doing this job, which was the closest they could get to doing good, you know. Um, mm-hmm. 
yeah, which is, I just think so interesting, especially in a place where I suppose I've always just been like, that's something I'm always thinking about. Like, how do you fix things? How do you do good in a place that is so, you know, it's impossible to do the right thing. Um, and what is the right thing? And yeah. Um, so I think the show kind of crystallized that for me somehow, like even as a kid. Yeah. Well, and the difference to me between NYPD Blue and Homicide is that NYPD Blue is a soap opera where people get to, you know, have sex in great lighting. And uh, that was a big deal, the nudity at the time. And 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 the, the sense of a reward at the end of every episode where you get to go home to the people you love. And Homicide, police officers would just kill themselves in the middle of the season because they couldn't take it anymore and they never expressed it to their friends and their friends are just left with the pieces of it. Yeah. Um, and you never know why. Get, yeah, yeah. Or people like, would just get shot down on a, on a call randomly. And that, that terrific, it was a two-parter, wasn't it? With, with Steve Buscemi as someone who probably killed yes. uh, open fire on three cops and is probably killed by another cop at the end of that second episode after he gets out on a technicality yeah. and the world just keeps rolling forward. And by the end of every season, we see the characters wearing this this depression and crushing misery on them. The, the survivors are genuinely survivors. Like they've, yeah. they've endured this sort of stuff. Um, and the show gives them the space to sort of process it or not process it. Like there's that whole arc with Kellerman in the middle of the season of the series where he descends into alcohol and misery and never really comes out again. I mean, he, he gets himself back to functioning, but it never goes away. And I, again, I'm just in awe of actors who could carry that for years and years without making it unwatchable. Um, they're not holding anything back. It's, it's, the nature of the the show to just get right in close on and the suffering of the cops as well as the bereaved that they're trying to help and yeah there's yeah. so there's so much humor in the show but it's all gallows humor like it's all just desperation and misery yeah <laughs> and it's so i mean so much of the humor is yeah it's it's people who like can't cope with their yeah like their emotions and and the kind of like yeah the pressures of work but then also like the pressures of the, like the partnerships that they have, like the work partnerships, which mm. are like the, for many of them, like, you know, at least the show proposes like are the most meaningful relationships in their lives. And like, I think, yeah, I mean, one of the like unsung heroes, I think, well, not, I mean, he's not unsung because I think he's deeply respected also is, you know, like uh, Clark Johnson. It is like just so amazing and such a nuanced, amazing, his character is so nuanced and so interesting and also maintains this very subtle character arc like throughout throughout so you know so many seasons and yeah he's 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 so amazing and so yeah he's a character I've really come to appreciate on this kind of second time round because he carries so much but he's the least um showy about it in so many ways and he's the one who's like doing okay when everyone else is having their crisis and you know Pendleton's like shouting around and everything you know like yeah Meldrick's just like you know, he's got, he's keeping his cards always close to his chest and yeah, he's so cool. It's so interesting. Yeah. And, and he's directing also. Um, so there's that too. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I will say I, you know, full disclosure, I know Clark a little tiny bit. He, uh, he's, his family is from Toronto and oh, wow. he used to work out at a gym around the corner from where I live and he would come home on hiatus and, and, I would see him, I would go out and walk my dog around the area where the club was and we would pass it and sometimes he'd be coming out. So I would eventually, like he, he met my dog. And so I introduced <laughs> myself and say, I'm a film critic and I've run into him a few times over the years. Oh, and wow. he's, he's a tiff every year, generally 
we find him on a patio uh, around the corner from the Scotiabank. I think High Fantasy was playing in there the day I ran into him. It's entirely possible. Uh, and he's well, just. Well, I have to come back to TIFF and absolutely. yeah, I'm going to stalk him next time. <laughs> yeah. And he doesn't get nearly enough credit, both as an actor and. I mean, he directed the pilot of The Wire, he set the yeah, tone for that yeah. show. Yeah. Um, no, he's so amazing. Yeah. It's so, so incredible and so intense. Like, Oh, wow. Yeah. He's such an incredible actor. I think I was, I can't remember. I think I was reading an article, a director may, may have been Barry Levinson was talking about working with him and just, yeah, you know, just what an incredible performer he is. And yeah, I mean, not that you need someone to tell you because you can obviously see. <laughs> yeah. But he does, he finds, he kind of occupies the center of every scene without ever raising his voice. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's when you realize maybe two or three seasons in, he's just not like Meldrick's just not going away. He's a lifer. Mm-hmm. And mm. he, yeah, he's the the sort of quiet anchor in contrast to Pembleton raging all the time and peacocking because he knows he's like Pembleton's tragic flaw, I think, is that he knows how smart he is and he, mm. he'll think he's the smartest person in the room at every opportunity and he isn't always, mm. uh, which is terrifying, truly terrifying. And then, of course, we're going to go, we might as well jump around the entire series, but his brain becomes his greatest liability in the final seasons. Um, and Meldrick is tired of him. Like he's, he works with him. He supports him, but he's just clearly, he just wants to file his report and go home. And he doesn't want to hear another speech because it's just been the same guy forever. And that, that balance, which I think is, is a device that David Simon as a writer has returned to over and over again, you know, find the guy who gets things done and find the guy who complains that things aren't being done fast enough and just let them occupy the same space until eventually you can understand, like the viewer can understand this balance. It's never stated outright. Meldrick doesn't complain. He, he gripes a bit, but mm-hmm. he does the job. He goes and does the job. And Pembleton complains about literally everything from the size, of the, like from the length of a sharpened pencil to the fact that a guy just walked away from murder. And yeah, you, they're, they're both carrying the same weight. They're just doing it so differently that you get the sense of, um, of a spectrum in the room, like in the frame with them. It's, it's remarkable. Yeah, no, they're, they're so incredible. I mean, yeah. Also, I mean, Andre Brower is, I mean, also, I mean, I love everyone, like literally everyone who has inside. Um, but yeah, I mean, of, of course, you know, he, he is, he's so amazing. And I, yeah, I mean, also another thing that's been, you know, interesting kind of coming back to the series is like, I now realize that um, for a few years, I was dating someone who basically was Frank Pimbleton, who was not objective. And I now re- I, I see this character within that kind of light of like, yeah, this person who's so righteously upset that the world is not working and yet is so awful to people around him um, and can't make the connection that these two things, you know, that maybe these things are related, but that they're also in conflict. And all the times that, you know, you were talking about how he's always right, but he's also so wrong so many of the, so much of the time. And yeah, I mean, I just recently watched the scene where he and Tim have this, they have that argument about the sandwich that like, I don't know if you remember that one where the like the, the you know, Frank keeps forgetting to order to Bayless the sandwich and he brings everyone else's take, but he can't remember, you know, and he never, the whole episode, they just have this argument about it and he can never apologize, you know, he can never admit that he did something wrong. And this person who has all this moral strength and all this intelligence cannot do the most basic thing that this other man who, you know, is essentially like in love with him is, 
is just asking for an apology. And it's, I mean, I don't know, that's just so human. Like, I, I don't know, there's just so many things that the show shows when it's not being about murder that are just so, so true and amazing. And you don't see in, in I mean, you definitely weren't seeing in other shows at the time or anything at the time. And now, yeah, I think we think of, you know, we expect television to be complex and now we see that more often, but yeah, I still, yeah, I, 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 it, it hasn't, for me, it, it, it's it it's still on par with with whatever we're watching now, if not still better. Um, yeah, except for some of the weird bits, but even I love the weird bits. So, <laughs> hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to tell you about my new Shiny Things newsletter, a weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and maybe even the odd streaming thing. This week. I wrote about Boris Johnson's resignation, the return of only murders in the building, and why Canada's day-long Rogers outage last week made a better case for the continued existence of physical media than I ever could. Subscribe for the price of a latte at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. I'm writing about movies again. Come check it out. It was It was a show that was willing to... I, I mean, I, I, yeah, I can't quite say that it was as transformative as Twin Peaks was. I mean, <laughs> that was television about television in a way that hadn't been attempted before. It was sort of spanning decades and of, of Peyton Placey sort of shows and and bringing it right up into the the horror of David Lynch's vision and, and finding ways to synthesize a new type of narrative, mm-hmm. which still lots of other people have tried and no one can do it. It's It's kind of been remarkable to watch um, Lynch just mine that vein and have no one else even survive the trip towards it. It's it's so strange and unique. Homicide feels more like television in that it has a structure and, a, and an ensemble and, it, and it's a procedural in a way that we understand. Um, there are cases of the week, there are subplots and mini arcs, and there are things that are introduced at the beginning of an episode and resolved at the end of an episode. And it feels like television, but it also, yeah, the camera choices, the, the just the, the, is it John Degonzak, um, who shot almost all of it, just running around with a, a very small steady cam, as I understand it. I think it was shot on 16 millimeter, but it feels like you're in the middle of an incredibly elaborate stage play sometimes where you're just ducking as people are charging towards you or, or moving around you. You're on the stage, you're in the room with them. Um, and it pushed envelopes in different ways. Uh, I might be wrong. I, I can't remember if the Adrian Shelley episode was the first season or the second season, but that would have been the first episode of it that I saw. The mm. one where Tim is introduced to the young woman who is, who is into bondage gear and ends up with that leather jacket that he wears for the yeah. rest of the show. Yeah. I don't think I had ever seen any television show address that level of, of complexity maybe, or um, scope in terms of sexuality and, and what we, what we would have then referenced as fetish wear, even though now like Madonna was wearing clothes like that five years earlier. And it wasn't, there's nothing revealing or graphic about anything that happens in that episode, but it is really raw in a very strange way. And I realized coming back to it and watching it the second time, it's all in, it's all in Secor. It's his, it's his hesitancy and his, his sweaty nervousness around these things. And I realized like, no, this is a coming out episode. It's just not about 
it's it is about sexuality. It's just not about coming out in any other way that network television could handle. It's just about somebody understanding that he's attracted to something that he didn't understand before. Yeah. And no one was doing that. Who was doing that on network television in the early 90s? Yeah. And then when he does, you know, essentially come out, you know, even though it's only quite a lot later, there's so much like sexual tension between him and Pemilton, but then also, you know, but, you know, him and other characters. And I think that's why I was just so obsessed with him because I could just tell that there was like all this suppressed, like, stuff in this character that I think I just like felt like I understood so much and then yeah when I remember when that I remember the episode where like when he came out because I was you know I guess I was a teenager watching that mm. at the time and wow like it, I, it you know I can't even remember how big a deal it was or not but I, I think it was a big deal in the sense that like you know I was so attached to this character and he was this was a big deal for him so it was obviously a big deal for me but it was also at the same time like oh yeah, he's bisexual. Cool. Like, you know, and, and, and I think that, you know, just watching that at that point, it was like, it, it forms, it forms what's okay. Like what, what can be on TV, you know? And like, mm-hmm. I got to see that and, and yeah. And then talk about it with my parents afterwards. And like, what is that? What does it, you know, who, you know, like, what does that mean? And yeah, I mean, I'm just so grateful that I had that exposure. It's like, you know, that's just one thing obviously, but, you know, also to a character who I expose at that point, like felt like a real person to me. It was like, you're watching someone you know so intimately, even though they're a fictional character, like going through this thing that is actually like so taboo at the time. And yeah, and how he and how he he's like so he never he never sentimentalizes that character's journey. And it's so beautiful. Like it's, you know, even in even in the the movie, when, you know, because I was I was rewatching parts of that again because I haven't watched it in ages. And mm-hmm. it it gets borders on sentimental, but he he keeps it like he's still so like compassionate, like for the, for the character, like he, Kyle Sacroft, like he, he never, I don't think he ever judges that character or like sees him as a character he's playing because it's so, there's so much love there. It's beautiful. Like so beautiful to watch. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, my first assumption in the early years was that we were just going to be watching the destruction of Tim Bayless, that the job Mm -hmm. would just hollow him out and wear him down and turn him into a shell the way half of the squad seems to be just going through the motions. Not that they're bad people or they're given up, but they're autopiloting a lot of things. I mean, Pembleton, again, as you say, like his his refusal to accept he might make mistakes or do the wrong thing does uh, force him into a few boxes over the course of the show as he picks the wrong suspect and won't be dissuaded uh, despite mounting evidence because how can he be wrong? He's Frank Pembleton. Tim is always open-hearted enough to get hurt, right? Like he's he's carrying all of these cases in a way that none of the other cops is. Maybe Kay Howard, but mm-hmm. we can talk about those characters as well. They're both, um, Kay, Kay deals with things in a similar way to Pembleton is that she just locks herself down and doesn't talk about it. And there's all kinds of stuff going on with her sexuality that we're never let in on Mm -hmm. uh, because she ends up being a peripheral character, which is unfair. Mm -hmm. But I I suspect it's just because I hate, I hate pulling this obvious thing, but like this is a show made by men and the women are pushed to the side a lot. Like Megan Russert has a whole arc that plays out off camera that we never really see about her marriage and her career. And, 
you know, these are both, um, so I'm double checking just to make sure I don't mix them up, but Melissa Leo and, and Isabella Hoffman are doing sterling work. They're both incredible, um, heartfelt performances that, again, this show just keeps brushing aside because the, the mm -hmm. central pairing of Bayless and Pembleton, there's two dudes and that's what we're going with. Yeah, it's almost like they, you know, I, yeah, because I, to I totally agree. And I also very, like also going back to it, I know that the characters that affected me the most over the years were always the male characters. And mm -hmm. it took me a while as a filmmaker. I think so much of like, so most of the films that I wrote as, you know, like when I was first starting out were always about men. Um, and it took me a while to kind of then lay that back on like, oh, the things that the characters that I loved and the shows that I watched and who and the movies that I watched and who made them, those were all men. So of course I'm writing male characters because I think that's the people whose stories happen to. Um, stories don't happen to women, <laughs> you know? So um, yeah, and I think this is a big part of it. And it's almost like they couldn't, no one, I mean, I get, you know, I'm casting aspersions here, but I guess the proof is also sort of in the pudding and also, but maybe it's also the network and I, you know, I don't know, but it's almost like someone lacked the imagination to wonder what K. Howard does at home. No one could really imagine it, you know, like you do when, when a writer is trying to write a script and they're struggling to kind of like, what would the character say next? You know, it's like, you know, I always say, I would say it's like, you don't know the character well enough. Like you need to go back and figure that out if you don't know what they're saying, because if, if it's someone, you know, you know what they would say. So, yeah, it's like, and it's actually, yeah, I mean, the more, yeah, I mean, I've, I've thought about this before, but like the, yeah, it, it, it's sad. It is, it's, it's like, there's this wall that comes down on certain characters and yes, it's appropriate. Like for, for Kay, it's, it's appropriate, I suppose, because she would almost like her, if her character was at making notes on the script, she would cut out those things, you know, but um, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's a loss, I think for, for the show. I think that, you know, even if not, I guess I'm more of a Kay Howard fan than I am um, a Megan Russett fan. But yeah, I would have liked more Kay Howard, definitely. And not just that one episode where she goes to visit the family and they go fishing. <laughs> <laughs> and even when they brought in uh, new female characters uh, like Callie Thorne and, um, and oh God, I can, uh, sadly I've interviewed, oh, Michelle Forbes, I've interviewed her bunch of times over the years and I always Aww. remember her as Juliana Cox because <laughs> she was such a distinctive performance in that and it, even when they brought them on they were still attached to men over the course of the yeah. storylines and they didn't get there I mean Juliana Cox has her own story in her origin episode basically mm -hmm. and then she just becomes the equivalent of uh, an expository machine to just deliver information and not involve herself as much in people's lives except for Kellerman yeah, no, I mean, I also, I mean, I remember like I, I, Callie Thorne also, I remember like had quite a big impact on me, but it was definitely like via her relationships and like, yeah, I remember getting very into that, like the whole romantic side of it and like getting very invested in like who's with who and like, you know, that aspect of the show, which is, you know, I think I always wonder like if that was, you know, like people kind of and you know the pressure to have something like that in there um oh, but yeah sure. I definitely, like I struggle to remember her outside of that um which is also sad um yeah yeah it felt too like the last thing you would want to do is have a relationship with a coworker in that situation the way that homicide crafted the vision of police work why would you ever want to go home with someone who'd seen the same things you had seen or unless the argument is that they, only they can understand each other in which case mm -hmm. The number of hookups is fairly limited for for that situation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, no, I, I guess there would be more if there was more women. Um, but I would have, I, I, I still wish that this could have been made. Like at a later point, we we could get we could get to ship Pendleton and Bayless together. I mean, that would have been <laughs> happy. I to this day, I think like if I was to ever write fan fiction, it would just be Pendleton Bayless hookup. <laughs> I don't think it would work. I mean, it would be really, really intense for one night. No, like it would be a disaster. Absolutely. <laughs> But I just want to see it happen. I want to see all the emotions and the feelings that come out of it. And like, what does this mean for them? And, you know, like, I just want to see them freaking out, basically, because that's what we <laughs> we love about those characters anyway. Um, but, I, yeah, that's I suppose also what's so great about it is, like, that there is so much between them that is not ever, like, actually addressed. And that's also the beauty of the whole the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, it comes up after Frank's stroke, right, when when Tim is helping him compensate and he doesn't want it. Mm. which is just so heartbreaking and the realization too that of just how alone Frank is despite the fact that he has support and there's you know he has friends he has some family but mm. it's just not happening for him he is so determined to bear it alone mm. yeah yeah and they're both they both are like they are both so lonely and yet they both rely so, they are so codependent um and they just can't admit it. And well, I mean, I suppose Bayless more can than you know Pembleton can, but you know Pembleton just can't admit that he needs anyone. Um, yeah, no, I mean it's such a it's so complex and and awesome. Um, yeah, I mean like to this day, it's like I, I can't I can't think of too many like on screen relationships like that 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 you know kind of compare to something like that. Mm, yeah. yeah. Well, and of course, time is a factor too, right? I mean, as with any television series if it runs long enough you start to feel like you know the characters better than they know themselves but homicide always did that from the very beginning like it knew the shortcomings of the the various leads as well as their strengths and would incorporate them actively into storylines i mean people's personal failings were as important um just again kellerman you know losing everything, reinventing himself as a private investigator, still like sort of climbing upwards against a hill he keeps creating for himself. Um, it's such a, it's such a simple tragedy, mm. but it becomes almost theatrical in his inability to, to learn. And yet everyone around him is still trying to help him, which feels like real life. Uh, it doesn't mm. feel like a sitcom resolution to, you know, somebody has a problem, they don't have it the next episode because everyone makes a speech. People keep making speeches and they just don't take, which, again, it's all personal life stuff. It has nothing to do with the job, except that Kellerman keeps trying to do the job and, and it's fucking it up spectacularly. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I just realized I, like, I, I keep like thinking of people and we have like we haven't discussed and I almost feel like guilty. Like I'm like, oh, no, but what if we don't like we don't talk about this person? So we haven't spoken about Richard Belzer. No, also- no. <laughs> So well, if you talk about Richard Belzer, you have to introduce the Munchiverse, which I'm just not prepared to do because it's such a dumb idea. But, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know about it, I'm sure, right? They, yeah. they cast him in an X Files episode as as Munch, and then he just kept showing up as Munch in other things until yeah. you could now make the argument that he's he is a a, a quantum physical space that occupies all reality <laughs> all the time, the Munchiverse or whatever you want to call it. He totally deserves it. Um, yeah. yeah. My family but, also loves him because like, you know, the, the levels of Jewish humor that he like sure, brings yeah. it is just like we like we love him. So there's <laughs> that too. Yeah, I knew um, him as a stand-up long before homicide and was really surprised that he fit as well as he does. Hmm. 
Yeah, I know he's he's incredible. I mean, he's also such he's an amazing performer, and um, yeah, I know. I'm mean, also just like a character with so many flaws who who you know who yeah who also just like alienates everyone around him and yet uh is happy with where he is but is also so also deeply alone I think that's yeah everyone is so lonely like and and yet all they have is this community which is never going to actually be enough to fill their loneliness and the job is never enough to fill their loneliness and yeah um yeah, I know. I mean, the whole thing is so tragic um, and at the same time has hope in it. And it's just, you know, constantly like offering up the, these like existential questions, which is also I think something just I love so much. And I think for why for me, like for when I was like some of my formative like influences is Homicide Live on the Street and like the Coen brothers, because I think they like have a lot in common, actually. Um, yeah. And just the way that even in the most mundane kind of ordinary line of work, there are these you know, constantly these bigger questions that come out of that, that ordinary people, not like intellectuals or, you know, like professors are having these conversations around what does this mean and why are we here? Um, yeah. And you don't need a degree to have that conversation. So, yeah. Yeah. And to fill time too, right? If you're in the squad room and nothing's going on, you're going to drift into important conversations without even meaning to do it. I had never thought about the Coen brothers comparison, but you're right. There is a love of absurdity in the corners of homicide where strange distractions and and weird obsessions can just completely dominate for an hour here and there where they just take over someone's entire day wasn't it is it bolander who gets a song lyric stuck in his head for an entire episode am i imagining that no i think i think i remember that or yeah something like it and yeah i mean I, so many episodes have things like i mean like the sandwich argument like mm. um i mean there's so many different things like that constantly um but yeah i think it's just that combination of like the darkness and the and despair and the like the void as a you know i guess i think about it in coen brothers terms like you know like just the nothingness of like you know what faces us after death and and then this lightness and humor and just talking as we'd say in South Africa, talking cack, like talking shit, you know, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, that's, I think what it was, what kind of, I suppose made me think of them as, you know, in some way related. Um, yeah. yeah. And it, I suppose it's a, it's a worldview that I suppose I, I share. So like, I can't even with uh, my latest film, you know, which is a horror film, it can't not have humor in it. There's still got to be a scene where, you know, the daughter and the mother are talking about like the mother's exes and like laughing about it. Like I can't, you can't have like darkness without humor. It's, they, yeah, they're always going to be interrelated. Yeah, we could, I mean, this is a good excuse as any. I still want to, I don't want to leave Yafit Koto off. We barely spoke of him. He's one of the few people from the show that I've actually interviewed about the show. Um, we talked yeah. years and years ago when the director's cut of Alien came out and we still spent half the conversation on homicide. And he just said <laughs> it was it was like it was his greatest playground because he could do anything as G. He could go mm. as big as he wanted and they always asked him to. But yeah. he, he said like he had a little game where he would pull back and you can see it in half the takes where he, mm. he's about to do something and then he simmers instead. And that became G's defining emotion where you're actually waiting for him to blow up because Pembleton's blowing up all the time. That's what, that's how he put it. It's like, I don't have to do that. Andre's doing that. I can do something else. And the original idea was that they would both yell at each other all the time. And it just never happened because neither actor was interested. Mm, wow. That's, that's so cool. Um, yeah. Oh, that's so amazing that you, that you interviewed him. Um, 
I suppose also just like in a South African context was seeing this, you know, like this black man who is in charge of his unit and respected and, you know, like powerful, um, you know, was just like also just such an amazing like thing to grow up with seeing, you know, like that's, you know, like he was such a role model, um, you know, I don't know, not obviously that sounds weird for me to say, but um just such an incredible character, like watching from a South African context, because, you know, it's something that, you know, I guess historically wouldn't, would, wouldn't have been something you would see on TV here. Um, and you probably wouldn't have really have seen it on TV, even in like the early nineties in South Africa, even when, you know, things were starting to change. So around the time here, you probably wouldn't have seen that on TV um, being made here. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, such a, like such a presence and such a powerful character. I, I was thinking, maybe I was thinking about one of his other roles that, um, I was reminded of, but yeah, I'm sorry. No, I can't. Remember no, no, that's okay. Um, what was what the, the ones right around that time? I mean, he would have just done a midnight run a few years earlier. Uh, Live and let die. Of course, where he's playing a horrifying racial stereotype and still making it work because the character is self-aware enough to be using it as a put on or, or mm-hmm. alien, which is like this, one of the great working class roles for anybody ever. Yeah. Um, I think it's, like I think, well, I don't know if this is what I was thinking of, but also I think my one of my favorite roles for him is it was it's in blue collar, right? I was just about um, to say. Yeah. Um, yeah, also I just remember seeing that. I mean, it wasn't when I was I was, you know, I definitely at least in my twenties by that point, but just being like, oh my God, like how was this film made? Like I've just seen working class people like portrayed like this. This is so incredible. Um, yeah, I know also he has such I mean, yeah, he's had such an interesting career. You know, what interesting roles. Like, wow. Um, and and he passed away recently, and I was yeah, so so sad. I know <laughs> it I broke my that. heart. Although yeah. this does kind of bring us to the end of the homicide series because the movie is about G being shot and sort yeah. of lying between life and death for the for the entire run of it, which I think someone said at the time it was the only way they could see this, the show ever really ending, that it had to end with him, quote unquote, leaving the squad. But mm. they realized he would never retire. The character mm. just like Giordello would never leave that squad room. So that had to, that was how they found the ending. And after seven seasons and being close to cancellation for all of them, which still stuns me because... Yes, nobody was watching, but NBC was known for supporting small, I guess they did support small trouble shows for their entire run, seven years as nothing. But to go out with the movie the way they did, it's it was overstuffed in a way that I think works for the show, in a way, <laughs> almost acknowledging that you can't tell everyone's story properly or you can't conclude everyone's story properly in, in this uh, situation. Like homicide yeah, just... I mean- it was always going to be unsatisfying. I mean, I remember feeling very unsatisfied by it and, and upset and sad and, you know, like everything. But I mean, yeah, it was always going to be like that. There was really no way you were going to do justice to all those characters yet, as you say, in a movie. And you were always going to have to have all those characters in the movie. And it was, all, yeah, overstaffed was, you know, and and that ghost sequence at the end and like, you yeah. know, and then the like sort of like greatest hits, like montage. And like, it's got, it, it, it's really just a, like, it's for the fans and that's fine, I think. I mean, I don't know. I, it's it, it sort of reminds me of, um uh, I have, I've had so many arguments with people over the years over Twin Peaks season one and two mm-hmm. and people who like Twin season one is the only real one. Season two is so like, other than the finale, it's just a waste of time. You may as well skip through all of it. And like, no, if you love the show, you love all of it. And you th- that's part of it. Those, those, those like silly scenes that are like 
basically feel to have like come from somewhere else and like you know are just like almost like filler it's you know or it's not filler it's part of the universe of the show and you need to like absorb it all otherwise you're getting half the story and I don't know I suppose I I'm very forgiving when it comes to like these kinds of things I'm like it's it's when you love some it's like when you love someone you forgive their mistakes uh, you know maybe I'm just too forgiving I don't know it's it is it's, it's a movie for fans and that's fine I think I would obviously love a great high quality cinematic finale film, but maybe that could never be done. I don't think it's even possible. Yeah. Not with this show. I don't think it would have supported it. I think it would have felt weird. It would have felt too glossy and too big. The strength of homicide is that it is about people in the box with each other as much as with their suspects and just trying to figure out the truth of something in a way that satisfies everyone. And that is ultimately impossible, right? Because the murderer is never going to want to tell the truth. You can never find the real truth because the victim took that with them. And I think, weirdly enough, I think that's what the show articulates over seven years and every episode is that there really is no way out that makes everyone happy. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, everyone's going to die. You know, who's that for? I mean, uh, yeah, I get it. I was, I, I was, I'm, I'm lucky because I just, I just refreshed my memory before, before coming onto this. I like watched the ending again. But like, <laughs> who's that fourth chair for? Like at the end, you know, it's for one of them. And if it's not this one, it's that one. And everyone's going to die. And these people that you love are going to die. And yeah, I mean, that existentialism and that lack of clarity, like the lack of closure rather, um, is so much part of the show. And, you know, I feel like I'm just like, you know, really, I'm just going to way too over the top because it's it is a cop show. You know, <laughs> you know what it is. But like, yeah, that's so much of what the like philosophy of homicide is. Is like, you have these people around you who you hold on to in your life and help you get through it. But at the end, everyone's going to be alone, and they have this beautiful moment in the bar where they're all together, and then they find out Jesus has passed, and they everyone's devastated, and they go back to work the next day. And that's how it ends. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it. she's going to be there forever. But is it even real? I don't know. You know, so yeah, it's it's um, it's it's appropriate, I think. Yeah, you sort of mentioned the influence of the editing on your own work. But is there anything in your films? I'm trying to think of anything in Good Madam that feels drawn directly from Homicide, tonally maybe. But I, I can't. Is there something um, you've directly pulled? Um. I think, I mean, I think the camera work and the editing, I've, I'm just always inf- influenced by. So maybe less so in Good Madam because, you know, it has a much more like, uh, it's it's a lot more subtle and um, well, <laughs> relatively, <laughs> I suppose. Um, but it's got a very specific flow and kind of like, I guess, more grace quote unquote, I don't know if it has any grace, but trying to have grace, um, then my other films, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's an uneasy stillness to it, I think. Yeah, um, so less flat, Flatland, not so much, because that was also like, you know, very specific kind of style. But um, my first two films, hugely, you know, I think just the way that the, you know, I've I've just, I think maybe it's, it's because of Homicide, but I've just always been, I can't have my camera, like, I can't, like, the idea of the camera sitting still, like, I can't make sense of, like, it's only if there's a very strong reason, like in Good Madam, where, you know, there was a particular style that we were going for, but otherwise, I'm like, the camera has to move, like, the camera, like, the energy of that camera, and, like, 
the idea of using smaller cameras and moving it in ways that cameras couldn't move, you know, before, you know, we had the technology we do now is always just very exciting to me. So there's that. Um, and then I think also just working a lot with improvisation, which, I mean, I had never really been entirely sure how much they did on homicide, but I imagine maybe there was some of it sometimes, but the improvisation and the, but not, if not necessarily improvisation, the kind of like freedom that they were given to do very different versions of the, of the takes and then editing those together where you have contrasting versions within the same scene. And that was something that, I mean, that was crazy thing to do on television, I would think. Um, but how that managed to, despite showing the audience that they're watching a movie or they're watching something on screen, how it somehow makes it more real at the same time. And how so many of the things we've been taught in film school as being like a jump cut is going to be, you know, it's going to draw attention to itself or it's going to make it feel stylized actually is the opposite sometimes. Like it's, it's more in line with the ways that our brains process information and and the way that we actually see. Um, so yeah, I think that's always been a huge influence on me and will probably always be because, yeah, I guess that's how I see the world, so. My thanks to Jenna Cato Bass, whose new film, Good Madam, starts streaming on Shutter this Thursday, July 14th. Thanks also to Kayla Heyer. She knows what she did. You can find Jenna on Twitter at HighFantasySA, H-I-G-H-F-A-N-T-A-S-Y-S-A, all one word, and you can find Homicide Life on the Street on DVD in season sets from Shout Factory. There's also a box set that includes the 2000 TV movie that wrapped everything up. And that's pretty much the only place you can find the show. It's not currently streaming anywhere, if you can believe that. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the podcast is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 46 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next time.